This Week in HPC. Mergers, divestitures, and new architectures. Look back at HPC in 2014. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to This Week in HPC. Actually, it's This Year in HPC. <laughs> I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. Michael, how do we feel about 2014? Well, it was a lot of interesting stories. Looking back at the year, it, it went by fast, and there were some big stories this year. There were some big stories this year. I should say that This Week in HPC is now distributed through our new partnership with Top500.org. And speaking of Top 500, Michael, one of the first news stories we had this year is we were all very sad about the passing of Hans Moyer, one of the progenitors of the Top 500 list and a key figure in ISC events. Uh, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't note his passing one more time. He'll be truly missed, one of the great people for the HPC user community we've ever seen. Yeah, he will truly be missed. He started a, a great tradition here, and it's going to last. Uh, it's going to be a legacy well beyond his uh, his tenure on Earth. But uh, moving beyond Hans to the rest of the year, the next thing that we were greeted with was uh, the IBM Lenovo news, and that really set the tone for a lot of restructuring around the vendor community that we saw throughout the year. Yeah, that was a big deal. In fact, the, that was basically the biggest deal that had to do with HPC this year. The purchase price was $2.3 billion uh, by Lenovo, and uh, I think $2 billion of it was paid in cash. So that was, a, that was one of the, not just the bigger deals of 2014, but in, in recent memory uh, of selling one company to another in, uh, that had HPC in it. Not really selling a whole company, but moving the x86 uh, server lines from IBM to Lenovo. This is something that I can't say that the news itself was that much of a surprise in of itself, but it was maybe a surprise in how soon it happened and how comprehensive it was, that it was really a, a clean sweep that would take all Intel products out of IBM and move everything over to Lenovo. It establishes Lenovo immediately as an HPC provider going forward into next year, and uh, and yet IBM still held on to some HPC mojo that it was able to keep swinging away, especially there at the end of the year. Yeah, it was it was a clean break for IBM. It's something you know we had we had sort of surmised for a while that that IBM was was really not comfortable with its with its x86 uh, business at all for for various reasons. I think um, it was it was a lower margin business than they liked, and they really were much higher on their their own homegrown power architecture, and they wanted to take that to different places. So the the two ends of the business became more and more incompatible, and, and finally that deal went through. And it and it does does set the tone for new a uh, new way to look at some of the relationships between vendors as we head into 2015 and beyond. A big thing that we talked about at supercomputing was that with open power, there's now this so-called line in the sand between IBM and Intel, and and that's one thing that we'll be looking forward to. What other impacts it has as the year goes on? HP, of course, announced its own uh, uh, restructuring, dividing into two separate companies. 
Right, that was a big deal. They and a little bit more of a surprise. They they split off the PC and printer business, and that's going to be known as HPC Inc. And then the uh, the the services and enterprise HP Inc. HP Inc. Right, sorry, HP Inc. And then the services business, along with the uh, the, the server business, it was going to be enterprise business. The right. enterprise business, yeah. So, um, and, and the other big thing with HP, it's towards the the middle of the year they got back in the supercomputing business for real with their uh, Apollo. 8,000 server, uh, something they hadn't done in a while. They hadn't had any real purpose-built uh, servers for the supercomputing business. So they they did a lot this year, and some of it uh, was definitely oriented towards uh, the, f- the folks we're interested in. You know, I really liked what we saw from HP this year. I would have said that that uh, split, the restructuring of the company, really wouldn't have any kind of effect on the HPC market in general. You're not really changing no. the lines of business, and, and the PC and printer business doesn't overlap into HPC at all, except that what it potentially does is provide more of a strategic focus for HPC on the enterprise side, and uh, and that really could be related to what we're seeing with with the, the Apollo 8000. I think it was a really noteworthy um, uh, release or, or new product for uh, the HPC market, and I'm looking forward to what we're going to see from HP going forward. Uh, you know, they, they would have said they had purpose-built things with Moonshot before, and I think there's the potential for, the, for some of that in certain special vertical markets that you can have a, a Moonshot-oriented configuration, but I'm, I was a lot more excited about the Apollo news than, than uh, I ever had been about Moonshot. Yeah, uh, the Moonshot is a different type of uh, platform, and it's certainly there were some variations on Moonshot that, that could be oriented towards HPC, but in Apollo, the Apollo 8000 particularly, there was a, basically a general-purpose supercomputing platform that, that went sort of head-to-head with what some of the under, other vendors have, so that was that was noteworthy there. But the Moonshot uh, portfolio is, is interesting. That's something else we'll keep an eye on, certainly, and they, towards the end of the year, they they had some variations with accelerators that were very much more oriented towards technical computing and, and the folks that uh, that we talked to quite a bit. Now, chronologically, in between IBM Lenovo and the HP uh, split up, we skipped over a different significant acquisition, which was uh, Bull in France getting acquired by Atos. This was uh, another big deal, 800-some million dollars, I believe it was. 844 million, right? 844 million dollars in taking Bull, a company that we're very familiar with in the HPC and big data kind of business, and aligning it with an established enterprise brand with Atos. And that became clear throughout the year that Atos has every intention of letting Bull continue to leverage the Bull brand in high-performance computing, supercomputing, and in fact, expanding the supercomputing strategy, exascale strategy within Bull. So, uh, a, a lot going on there for for, uh, that European vendor. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting uh, buy by by Atos. I don't think anybody really had, had talked about that before. And then, like you said, it was it was all good news for Bull. They basically get a, a better exposure into a, a, a global and European market than they had before, and they get basically left alone as a, as a separate division under the the new regime. So, uh, should be a win win for both sides of it. 
And I, I think we'll take another close look at that bull exascale strategy when we get to our, our next podcast, our final of the year, as we look ahead to 2015 and some of the exascale strategy evolution that we've seen from different vendors. But sticking with mergers for a second, we got one more, I think, a pretty significant one. In fact, it was a larger deal than the bull Atos one with SanDisk buying Fusion IO for $1.1 billion in June. Yeah, that was a very interesting acquisition and, and a lot of money for Sandus for, for Fusion IO. But remember, Fusion IO had that IPO and they all of a sudden they were worth a lot of money once they went public and they had good penetration to the market. But a lot of that, uh, you got to realize, is, is based on faith. I mean, I don't think they quite have the revenue yet to, to generate uh, that much capital. But SanDisk, you know, liked what they saw and they, they were able to add to their. Uh, the flash disk side of their portfolio and get a very key uh, key part of the technology with Fusion IO. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that one. If someone had asked me before those deals happened which company was worth more, Fusion IO or Bull, I would have said Bull for sure, looking at the current portfolio, their revenue stream. Now, SanDisk obviously is banking on the expansion of Flash, uh, due especially to a lot of big data uh, initiatives out there that are stressing IO throughput. And, and I can see that, but mm -hmm. I I'm not so sanguine on the notion that all of storage goes over to flash. I think disk and even tape will continue to play an important role going forward. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think everybody right now that was looking at, at flash disk technology as a big growth area. I mean, we've seen a lot uh, of growth into it this year in various aspects, servers, storage, uh, basically anywhere you can put you know, flash memory, people have found a place for it. And so I think there's a big, uh, there's a big expansion going on, and I think that'll continue for the for the near future, too. And of course, uh, you know that was a, a big news on the, on the data side. But uh, wrapping up the the data acquisitions, we would be remiss didn't uh, mention that Seagate did complete the acquisition of Xyratex. Now that had been previously announced, but it wasn't until March of this year that Seagate completed that acquisition. And um, you know, I had theorized that that Seagate might not be interested in keeping the cluster store division going forward. That that might be for sale. That's one that I'm happy to say as an analyst, I got wrong that uh, Seagate really by the end of the year had strengthened the messaging around its uh, its enterprise and cloud strategy and showed what a prominent role that cluster store line would take in its vision going forward. Yeah, they did. They actually revamped their strategy around the original company to bring Xyratex into it, or that became a big part of it. So yeah, it looks like they are committed to that that portfolio and that technology. And like like you said, I'm happy to see that as well. That goes back to just a year ago now, right before Christmas, uh, Seagate had announced that they were going to acquire Xyratex. We got that Christmas present with a surprise uh, news story last year, just when we thought everything was was winding down, and and that really kicked off an exciting 2014 in the in the this mergers, acquisitions, and in, in divestiture space. I think that's going to continue to have a significant impact as we look ahead to 2015 and some of these shifting alliances, strange bedfellows that we have in our space. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions for sure last year. I think the other thing that that uh, we saw a lot of this year, and we've, we've seen a lot in years past, but there was 
more so this year, we saw specialization of different architectures at the chip level, at the system level, um, at the design level as well. Uh, maybe more so than before. I mean, we've seen these, this uh, the supercomputing space evolve very rapidly, uh, but this year a lot of things sort of came to the fore with uh, the different. Um, accelerators and an arm, and uh, some of the flash memory like we just talked about. Uh, exactly right. I mean, one thing that's clear is that we are now in 2014 at a point where in a year of transition in high-performance computing, and this is something we talked about in the wrap-up from supercomputing a great deal that we've really exited this Beowulf era of standardization and are swinging back toward specialization again with all these different architectures in play. We, we saw this coming a few years ago that there was a lot of uh, 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 choice or options in, in front of users and that people were going to test GPUs, people would test Xeon Phi's. Now we've had ARMs come in here, data-centric computing, FPGAs are still around. This hasn't gotten any easier. Yeah, it certainly has it. And and with ARM, I guess you could almost build the same Beowulf type cluster with an ARM, but I don't even know if that would be called the, the Beowulf cluster if you had ARMs in it. Maybe, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But we saw three companies move you know, pretty uh, pretty directly into that space this year. AMD, of course, rolled out its first ARM server chip uh, this year. Um, and then we saw Cavium, towards the end of the year, come out with their 48-core Thunder X chip. Uh, we knew right. they were working on something, but we didn't quite know when they were going to come out with it. And that's uh, actually garnered a lot of tension already. Cray's already working with them to, to look into building uh, maybe an HPC platform with, uh, with the Cavion chip. And then, of course, Applied Micro, yeah, which Applied been, Micro also. Yeah, they were there first, and uh, they actually announced their X-Gene chip uh, last year, and then they started selling it in 2014, and they're already working on their second-generation chip. And we've already seen certain HPC sites like Barcelona Supercomputing Center trying to push what can be done with ARM. I think the arrival of 64-bit ARM uh, from multiple vendors is, is going to do nothing but accelerate looking at what kind of role ARM will play in this ecosystem. Yeah, as, thus far, it's, it's all experimental platforms. I don't think there's any production systems, at least none that have been announced, that are using 64-bit ARM right now. But I think um, you know that's going to change in the near future. And with these just with these three vendors in the space and with a lot of interest, a lot of the OEMs picking up those chips, uh, I think we'll see some some real deployments, if, if not next year, then the year after that. Uh, arms, arms coming up pretty rapidly, it looks like. And, you know, Intel, of course, in the middle of all this, has been doing its part in moving up the value chain. We've seen Intel um, quite strategically incorporating a lot more technologies, looking to move those on chip if they can, or incorporate them into the Intel architecture, Intel making a lot of moves on software. And that's where you're seeing um, initiatives like Open Power with IBM, Mellanox, NVIDIA starting to look at, are there alternatives that can be made in an industry consortium that are outside of Intel, and Open Power landed its first major wins around the end of the year, uh, going into supercomputing with the announcement of two Coral supercomputers for the DOE labs, these pre-exascale systems. Right, those are uh, 100 petaflops or better, each of those systems. And yeah, that was a big win. Of course, those systems won't go online until 2017, but it, it shows at least that at least these customers, the DOE customers, have some confidence in, in IBM and the power architecture and the open power uh, platform itself, that, that these are significant, uh, it's a significant architecture and they're willing to take their bet on it. 
One thing that's been clear throughout the year, though, is that with all these choices in the market, we're hearing more and more from end users that it is very difficult for them to be making purchase planning decisions right now when they're not sure what's the architecture that they want to be on in five years or even in three years. There's a lot of testing of architectures going on. There's a lot of testing of applications going on, middleware. There's been open source on the swing, on the upswing. And one thing we saw in the Solve report that we did with the United States Council on Competitiveness, which is available uh, from the, uh, the council website at compete.org, the Solve report showed that when you look at uh, industry scalability going forward, industry trying to get to their newest levels of supercomputing scalability, those software issues are really the number one barrier standing in their way. Yeah, and I think that's, in a sense, that's going to get even worse because with all this specialized architecture and the diversity of architecture we're seeing, that that software uh, piece of the puzzle becomes even more complex. Now you have different types of targets, different... I mean, completely not just different architectures, different instruction sets, but different types of architectures where you have to build the software somewhat differently for each each one. Um, so, yeah, in a way, we're sort of moving, making the software harder by giving uh, users a, a, a bigger choice of, of hardware. Well, that's exactly the point, I, and and why I keep harping on this idea that we've moved out of the Beowulf era. It's not that we won't still have cluster computing, and of course we will. But the, I think one of the core values of a Beowulf cluster when they came out was this notion of portability. That if you had an MPI job, an MPI application, that it was portable from one cluster to another. That you'd created this common denominator where a, an application that runs on one Linux cluster would be uh, would be expected to run just as well on another Linux cluster if it had a, a similar configuration. And that's really what we've moved away from, that right. now you might optimize for one system, but that optimization is not going to equally well port over to something else. Or, or even if there was a little difficulty porting because it was a slightly different system, at least the, the programming model could stay the same. It was basically an MPI model with you know the, the same sort of things. So you just had to do a little porting, but here, like when you add an accelerator on, or you, or you, um, you know, have a completely different architecture and power, or something like that, the porting becomes much harder. And sometimes you have to change actually the framework of the program and sort of get into the guts of it. And that's a much more uh, expensive proposition than, than just tweaking it. Uh, what it all adds up to, Michael, is we're going to have to keep watching this industry in 2015, see how some of this stuff continues to play out. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it'll it'll be another sort of continuation of this. We're going to see more of the same and, and, and uh, even more so next year. Well, Michael, I hope you and our listeners have a Merry Christmas. We'll come back one more time for kind of a, a New Year's uh, edition of This Week in HPC, where uh, in absence of a, a big Christmas surprise news story, which we did get last year, we'll plan to do a, a kind of a look ahead to 2015 and some of the predictions and industry dynamics that we're going to be on the watch for in the year ahead. Sounds good. Looking forward to that. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. Happy holidays to you and, uh, and to our listeners as well. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. 